This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. Today, I'm with Edward Smith, co-CIO of Rathbones. Ed, thank you so much for joining me this morning. That's my pleasure, John. Excellent. So um, a pretty interesting couple of weeks in markets. Obviously, um, Sterling's recovered somewhat since this not-so-mini budget, but are you still concerned about the pound's weakness, and what are you really doing to, to hedge that risk in the future? Yeah, so we're, we're long-term investors at, at Rathbones, which is um, really just as well cause, because there's a pretty significant literature, academic literature, showing that reliably projecting exchange rates less than a year out is all but impossible, right? Relative interest rate differentials work until they don't, and then they really don't. Technicals or momentum, ditto. And I think the 10 cents rebound in the pound uh, against the dollar over the past week alone has flown in the face of many of the short-term forecasts that were made in the turmoil at the beginning of last week. Um, but there is good evidence that a variety of frameworks can forecast where the pound is heading over the longer run. So that's what we're, we're really concerned about, the long-run valuation of the pound, because that affects our strategic allocation decisions. And you know, like most analysts, I think we think that the so-called trust and optics is highly unlikely to do much to boost potential long-term growth for the UK. There doesn't really seem to be much of an interest in number 10 of basing policy decisions on evidence and data. But at the same time, it's unlikely to be an unmitigated disaster uh, either uh, over the long term. And whether we look at simple valuation frameworks like purchasing power parity or the IMS complex ones or our preferred behavioral equilibrium model, which just looks at relative export prices, relative productivity and demographic pressure. All of them suggest that the pound is undervalued against the dollar, even under pretty pessimistic assumptions about the UK's future. And that's a long-term risk that we absolutely must factor into our allocation decisions when we're looking to invest overseas. um, But a catalyst for dollar depreciation might not come uh, it might not be around the corner, right? We might have to wait until the energy crisis subsides or inflation fears are finally admonished or the business cycle turns higher. Could I dig in a bit further on that? So, so what what exactly are you doing to hedge? You, you say it's a risk, sterling weakness, but are, are there any um, asset allocation things that you can do to hedge the risk a bit more? Yeah, so we're probably uh, so very simple one, which isn't exactly a hedge, but actually it means that we're holding a little more in uh, sterling-based assets than we perhaps otherwise uh, would would do just based on, on pure fundamentals alone. Where we can, uh, we um, uh, invest in hedged uh, share class or, part, or we're partially investing in hedged share classes of uh, if we're going to third parties for overseas exposure um, and um, you know when we're accessing things like uh, US tips we prefer to do that on a hedge basis we prefer US inflation protected bonds at the moment to UK inflation protection. Hmm. 
And more broadly, how has your asset allocation changed over the past few weeks? And what's been happening with, with your f- fixed income allocation? Yeah, so we responded to last week's turmoil by uh, convening an ad hoc asset allocation committee meeting. And um, the focus on that was really whether we should be buying or selling gilts, as well as the long-term outlook for the pound, if that's changed. And as we just discussed, the latter answer was no. Uh, But the first, we break down the question, I guess, into chunks. What's the outlook for UK growth, inflation, the housing market, and monetary policy? How high will the the Bank uh, of England uh, hike rates to now, and that all of those are interconnected. And to cut a long story short, I mean, a major change in our view is that we now think uh, that the bank will um, hike to a higher peak in rates. We now think between four and a half and five percent. There is more risk that inflation stays stickier for longer in the UK than in any other major economy, in our opinion, and that's based on uh inflation expectations becoming unanchored the labor market not recovering import prices uh due to the weak pound etc so we remain comfortable with our below benchmark weighting to gilts and within that a level of duration below that of the benchmark but you know i've got to be honest with you john we did as a house recommend uh, adding to gilts or reducing that overweight somewhat in early september which with hindsight was clearly premature but we were dealing with a different set of facts then right and thankfully thankfully we remained as i said below benchmark weighting and especially below benchmark duration and how did that change prior to the to the mini budget i mean you say you're, you're underweight gilts now and, and what was your position before that point yeah, so we were underweight before the budget. We haven't made any changes since the budget, but we were happy with continuing with that underweight uh, position. We've seen pension funds dumping assets. Are there bargains to be had at the moment? Well, I think for multi-asset investors like us, who can you know, choose between equities and bonds and credit, um, yeah, we are now seeing alternatives, right? Tina has become Tana. There is no alternative has become there are now alternatives. Um, yeah, we're seeing yields and maturities that we haven't seen in over a decade in many of our favorite um, credits and bonds. Um, yeah, we're able to put together fairly short duration portfolios that are yielding 6 or 7% now. And that's from a mix of Govies, investment grade credit with some subordinated debt and convertible capital which uh, professional clients can can access and so for an asset allocation nerd like me uh, john that's that's really pretty exciting um we think it's too early to get into high yield debt which can offer even more uh, of a bargain but when the business cycle turns that could be offering tremendous risk adjusted returns uh, again, so that's sort of something on our on our watch list. But yeah, we're pretty bearish on the business cycle at the moment, so that may be uh, a little while away. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, so looking at asset allocation, zooming out a bit. I mean, there's this trope of the sixty forty weighting towards towards equities is the sort of traditional asset allocation. Has that flipped round at the moment for someone coming in new? Is it is it um, you know sixty forty weighted towards fixed income? Well, I mean, not um, not government debt, no, I don't no. think. Um, so, 
so which is that sort of traditional textbook 6040 uh, if you but like what about corporate um, debt and, and high yield everything in that in that mix yeah so i think uh, corporate debt um is looking to play much more yeah we think it has a bigger role to play in multi-asset portfolios at the moment than it has done for a long time certainly in sterling and euro credit markets you've got valuations in the sort of 80th and 90th percentiles um and the when we're concerned about equity market beta uh, investment grade credit is a good place uh, to to sort of lower that beta whilst still uh, remaining exposed to upside in uh, in risk assets. Um, I think, yeah, but yeah, clearly the the sixty forty portfolio this year has had you know the the worst first nine months I think since something like nineteen thirty seven. Um, looking at the S&P and US Treasuries as a proxy for that 60-40. So, um, so clearly, and in, even if you'd switch that, flip that ratio round, you'd still be in a pretty um, you know, mm. poor, poor place. So it really means at the moment that we are underweight, that sort of benchmark equity exposure, but we want to be really diversified, um, some in bonds, some in credit, but also in other diversifying assets, certain types of actively managed strategies, uh, gold, um, other types of uh, diversifying um, uh, uh, strategies. I mean, how good is gold as a diversifier at the moment? I mean, the the price of gold hasn't been particularly strong um, during this turmoil. No, um, yeah, held up well at the beginning of this... this, this bear market, but but no, of late it hasn't uh, boosted uh, returns. But we still do think it has a uh, a role to play in portfolios. We have reduced gold throughout the year, but we still maintain a decent exposure to it. It really comes into its own when equity or bond market sell-offs are driven by geopolitical turmoil. You know, we've tested that back in back in history. Yeah, and there is clearly still a risk of more. Uh, disturbing markets from that uh, from that factor. I wanted to move on to uh, what investors should do if they've got a high cash position at the moment. I mean, I, th- I think this is going to be quite common. A lot of people with sitting on quite a bit of cash in the bank that's being eroded away by inflation. I mean, is it better to be defensive at the moment or, or be more bullish and, and seeking opportunities? Yeah, so I mean, we are defensive and we are running uh, higher than usual cash ratios in our investment portfolios, say around 5% for medium risk clients as opposed to around 2% is the norm. But what I would say to anyone sitting on a bit of extra cash because they want to be defensive is that you really look at putting that to work in, in one and three months of T-bills, T treasury bills, um, which is, you know, Pretty uh, you know, free lunches in investment are, are almost unheard of, right? But you can get pretty darn close to one by instead of just sitting in cash, purchasing something pretty close to cash like a, a treasury bill, and you're immediately picking up an extra one to two percent of annualised returns, right? Most uh, treasury departments of investment platforms are still offering fairly meagre rates of interest on cash, just like commercial banks are, are on our current accounts, right? You know, say half percent, maybe 75 bits. 
But the one month, uh, but the three month T bill, for example, is giving you not far off three percent. So, so really consider if you are holding cash, putting it into something very cash-like and picking up an enormous yield uh, pickup. But if you've got lots and lots of cash on the sidelines because you're you know, quite understandably very anxious about putting anything to work, I really do recommend uh, you know, starting to average into uh, to, to, uh, financial assets. You know, it's funny, when, you know, if, we, if, if we think about buying a new jacket right, and, and, uh, or a new piece of clothing that we've got our eye on and it falls in price by 20%, people t- we tend to snap it up. When financial assets fall by 20%, we're actually even less likely to buy them than if the price rose by 20%, right? And that's just because we're, we're, we're human. You know, we get the anxiety around the decision to invest. It's nerve-wracking, of, of course. But if you have a willingness and ability to put capital at risk for, for long-term returns, it really is important to, to put that money to work. For sure, invest defensively, average that money in a fixed amount this month, a fixed amount next month. But start soon because all that uncertainty that's around at the moment cuts both ways. There are plausible scenarios where asset prices rebound and you don't want to miss out uh, by sitting in cash, uh, a huge amount of cash, despite your ability to put it to work. Ed, you're, you're known to be a bit of a chart fiend. Um, appreciate this is a podcast and, and you probably would have to explain it somewhat. But what's the most important one that you've seen over the past couple of weeks? Okay, well, I'll take the chart fiend uh, moniker as a compliment, John, but um, I think that's probably uh, apt. Um, well, I think like you know, 8 million other mortgaged up homeowners around the country, I think one relating to mortgage rates and guilt guilds is, is pretty seared into my retinas at the moment. So since 2008, five-year mortgage rates, five-year fixed mortgage rates have offered about one and a half to 2% above the five-year gilt yield. So you can imagine those two lines on a, on a chart. Uh, so that means that with the five-year gilt yield where it is, the five-year fixed is likely heading to almost 6%. Now, this is gonna, I'm not sure how well this is going to work, but bear with me. If you imagine a second chart, and this is a scatter chart this time, it's a bit more complex, mortgage rates on the vertical axis than the loan-to-income ratio of the average mortgager on the horizontal axis. And we've got dots representing quarterly data over the last 40 years. Now, the scattering of that of those dots looks like a pretty uniform, a really remarkably uniform downward sloping curve. Higher mortgage rates means lower loan-to-income ratios because ultimately, um, yeah, there's only a certain proportion of income a householder is willing or able to pay to own uh, a home each, each month. So if mortgage rates are hitting 6%, Historically, using this curve, this would mean a loan-to-income ratio of 2.5, but today it's 3.5. So to get back to that historical equilibrium at 6% mortgage rates, we either need incomes to rise or loan sizes to fall, which actually means house prices need to fall. And if the adjustment were to come entirely from house prices, that means a fall of over 20%. So that's quite a scary reading of, of these charts. Now, nominal incomes are going to rise somewhat because wage inflation is strong and mortgage rates may actually come back a touch from 6% because actually before 2008, mortgage rates were actually consistently a bit below gilt yields. And maybe we'll go back to that, although that could have been about lax regulation. But nevertheless, we think it's quite likely we're looking at a 10% fall 
in house prices. And that's really something that we need to consider. We know a lot of investors in the UK see the prop the housing market as just as good an investment as financial assets. But with financial assets having already taken on board a lot of the bad news in today's prices and the property market yet to fall at all, you know, we think that's something to think about. And and on that more bearish view of, of a twenty percent fall, how long would that take to bed in? Yeah, so that pro- that wouldn't be over overnight. Obviously, those mortgage rates take time to feed through to the the rates that people are actually paying because only 20% of mortgages are on variable rates. About another 20% are on fixed rates, but ones that are becoming due for a renewal or reversion to the to the variable rate in uh, within the next year. So that could be a slow moving process if that really bearish case plays out. Uh, but a 10% fall could yeah, happen over the course of the next year. And looking at um, people with, with their um, interest rates on their mortgages rising significantly, could we see a widespread defaults in the market? Well, I think the good news, that unlike previous surges in house prices in the UK, is that this the one over the last decade hasn't been fueled by lax regulation. In fact, we've had much higher regulation since the financial crisis, much more stress testing of borrowers, uh, much more stringent caps on on loan to income ratios and and and, and uh, factors like like that. So I don't think we're, the UK housing market is likely uh, to go through a big boom and bust. Uh, cycle like it has done a couple of times over the last uh, 40 years or, or so. But I do, um, but I think a, a, a small rise in default rates is likely, and that depends on the severity of the of the recession and uh, that's almost certainly coming in the UK and how far unemployment is likely to rise. But with the lab, labour supply very tight at the moment, um, it is uh, you may get more of adjustment in uh, job vacancies than you get in an adjustment in actually jobs held. So we may not be seeing unemployment rise too far, which will cap the extent to which mortgage default rates uh, rise uh, uh, as well. But we do think uh, at least a small rise is likely. So the big buzzword or acronym of, of late has been LDI. How serious is the LDI situation and is it a worry for you? Yeah, so I think um, yeah, we're always on the lookout for sources of financial uh, stability risk because you know, that can cause some pretty serious, serious events as uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis showed. I think we've got a very good handle that, it's un- that a, a financial crisis is unlikely to stem from the banking sector because we've got very different capitalization ratios, much more data, it's all been kept an eye on. But there has always been a risk that a shock could come from the uh, non-bank financial sector. Uh, And obviously there's been questions raised about whether that shock is actually going to come from the pension sector because of this liability-driven turmoil due to that extremely sharp move in, uh, in in bond yields we saw we saw last week now our analysts have been speaking to insurers 
yeah, we are um, yeah, getting a, uh, trying to get a handle on the, the possibility of uh, further runs in this market causing further fire sales of assets. And we think that the, that the risk isn't uh, especially high, but it's not zero. Uh, and really, it will, we'll have to see what happens once the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England stop buying bonds at the long end of the curve, and which may cause a bit of a rise in, in, in yields again. So yeah, we, we're not writing it off as zero risk. Um, yeah, it is something that we really must keep an eye on and we'll continue to talk to the relevant parties about. But at the moment, uh, we, we don't think it's going to cause a, uh, a financial crisis as our, as our base case. Ed, thank you so much for, uh, for, for talking to me this morning. That's my pleasure, John. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 